You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer. Uh, Josh Behrman is out sick this week, guys. Sick, sick from going to Oscar parties because Josh won an Oscar. Call your friends. You too big to give us a call? I just talked to Josh today. Right. How's he doing? He's doing great. Fe- feeling all Oscar-y? He should be. Did he it's say amazing. when he'd be next hosting the podcast? I think we'll get him on the next one. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely, he's, he'll be on the next one. He said he's coming back to the fold. Yeah, he said he's definitely going to be here next week. Hey, guys, I got something to plug this week. Plug, plug that, it. Plug that hole. Um, the Addams has a new story out. It's called The Sinking of the Bounty. It's by Matt Scher. It's about a shipwreck during Hurricane Sandy. It's really an amazing story, and you can find it at our website, atavis.com. I'm excited you guys got Matt Share. I'm excited about our sponsor, Tiny Letter. Powerful, simple email newsletter from the good people at MailChimps. Thanks for your support. Max, who did you talk to this week? You guys, I talked to um, Emily Nussbaum. She is the TV critic for The New Yorker. Her other claim to fame, she invented New York Magazine's approval matrix. Well, I approve of that. Hello. Thank you for coming on the show. You are welcome. How are things? Things are good. You, this week, you you just, uh, you did this panel, right? You interviewed Tina Fey and a bunch of other people who wrote for 30 Rock. I did. And as I said, when I was doing the panel, it was honestly my dream come true. It was one of my absolute favorite sitcoms and big Tina Fey person. So there was this difficulty of being asked to do a panel where I knew I was going to do this sort of, remember that episode where you did that thing? That was really good. Yeah. So that's basically I, been like half of these episodes that I've done. Yeah. Well, you're what? You're a year and a half into this right. job, something yes. like that. And before that you were at New York Magazine and you were doing, um, I think at least like, you know, the profiles that I remember from the sort of end of your time at New York Magazine feel a little bit like a hybrid of a review mm-hmm. and reporting. I, I think mean, that's true. Um, so I guess, uh, do you miss doing that? Do you miss the reporting part? I, do you miss that blend? I, I will say that I do not right now miss the reporting part. 
I, I actually feel relieved of the reporting part. And I feel, you know, different feelings about different profiles I've written. Like some of them, I feel that sort of self-loathing feeling about wanting to have done things differently. Other ones I'm really proud of and I feel like they hold up. And, you know, I will egotistically reread something sometimes. <laughs> really? I'm trying to remember what my thoughts were on that because I don't specifically remember like somebody where they've created later shows. I'm sort of curious what I said. Like there are things that I think hold together. But I find it, and you may find this different than I do, like everybody seems to have a different emotional response to the kind of strange therapeutic false intimacy of reporting, which you were both people are performing, but it's genuine and they care what the other person thinks of them, but they also don't and it's serving different purposes. I find it extremely draining. And the transaction. Yeah. And as my husband knows, when I've been immersed in writing a profile, especially a real deep, long profile, even if somebody that I love, and I've actually mostly written profiles of people that one way or another, I admire their work or I, I, I'm not like a, I'm not, I wouldn't be a good hit artist. Like I just don't have the, I, I think those pieces are really useful. I don't have the sensibility for it. But even with people I really admire, I just feel that very like drained upset feeling after doing interviews that I don't really feel while I'm writing criticism. What, what, what is that drained feeling about? Like what, what's the psychological you know, toll of doing like, that stuff? It's all sorts of things. I mean, I, I are like, you going to feel drained and horrible after this no, conversation? No, because it's a conversation <laughs> about the job, which is fine and actually fun. And it's interesting to think aloud about what I think I'm doing or what I'm trying to do. Um, but it, but it is interesting because I do feel like for a lot of TV writers, cultural writing jobs take very different forms. And, um, we were talking about this a little bit before, but the, um, the, you know, historically TV critics have, uh, have served many different functions, often contradictory. So you had a lot of TV critics whose job was simply to work with PR people to create publicity for TV stations. So they might write criticism, but they're also industry reporters. And obviously there's a tension between those two things. And then there were other, you know, so there are people who are writing just puffery, right. basically, or cheerleader stuff. And then there were other people who were intellectual critics who were slumming because TV was considered a junk form. So it was a good kind of place to sharpen your knife or to overpraise something that wasn't actually that good, but just because it was better than the other stuff. And right now it's changed because the digital world makes it so that, first of all, everything's blurred together. You do Q and A's, you do recaps, you do reviews, you do long pieces. And, you know, the same person does a lot of those things. And I think that can be really rich, but I will say that this is, you know, it's a very lucky circumstances that I've landed a job where I'm not required to, you know, report on ratings while simultaneously writing sort of aesthetic criticism. I love the purity of that. Like I, right now, that's very satisfying. Just being able to focus on on sort of one thing. Every two weeks, you're going to write a column. Do you, how do you choose what you're going to write about? I yeah. mean, is it is it like uh, your last column? Well, I guess there's going to be a new one out the day that this comes out. But yeah. The last one that was in print that I read was right. the House of Cards right. review. Did you feel some pressure to, to like It's not to pressure. Cover that? that was actually, that was the rare column that I wrote that came from my editor saying, um, are you going to do anything about House of Cards? And I was like, yeah, you're right. I should completely do this. Um, I mean, I knew about House of Cards and I'd been reading things about it and I hadn't previewed the episodes and I was planning to catch up on it, but I actually bumped forward a different column I was doing. I had long wanted to do a column on Raising Hope in the Middle, which is my next column, and I just wedged in 
this other one. And also I'd been arguing online with people about the office. So somehow I multi-purposed <laughs> that thing to make my petty little argument well about, yes, Team Brian and like supporting the office. So it actually, it, it varies. I do have um, an idea in my head about what I'm doing with the columns, which is that I very deliberately try to keep a balance between drama and comedy, cable and network, big show that everybody's talking about, little show that I want to turn people on to. You trying to avoid like hitting two of those in a row? I mean, do you want I do, and I actually have other things in mind too. Like I sort of try to recognize patterns or I, you know, I repeat themes because there are things that I'm obsessed with and sort of evangelical about. But, you know, I don't want to do three pieces on procedurals in a row. I'm mostly focused on scripted television. At one point I was like, I need to do something on reality. So I actually went online. I hadn't been watching a lot of reality shows, even though I used to be very interested in reality television. For a variety of different reasons, I've stopped watching as much of it. And I'd been planning to do something on Teen Mom. But I went online and basically said to people, um, what what reality show is doing interesting things right now? And I got a bunch of suggestions. And from that brainstorm, I decided to write about Big Brother because I was a maniacal, crazy Big Brother watcher when it first started. <laughs> like I watched the first season online as a web watcher, and I thought it would be a good self-mocking thing, but kind of, it, you know, with the columns, I try to... I, I, sometimes I'm just writing a column because there's a show that I feel like people want the critical response to. They want to know, is it good me, or is it bad? Me... But a lot of times I'm trying to serve larger themes. And in this case, I felt like if I write about Big Brother, I can write about the the way that show has changed and about self-consciousness on reality TV. And But the, when you say, like, uh, I'm trying to... Sometimes I feel I want to write about mm. something that the people want yes. to hear about. Who are those people? Like, who's the reader that you're thinking of? Do you, do you feel like... Now that you are the television critic at the, the New Yorker. The television critic at the New Yorker. Yeah. Do um, you feel like you have to review highbrow stuff? Like, do you have to hit, yes. hit, hit the Opposite. things? <laughs> Opposite. Um, I mean, s- sort of. You know, I want my voice to be in there on debates about shows that are important and significant sources of conversation. Breaking Bad, for instance, I, I was literally like, I want to write a column on this and I have to figure out like a new angle because I didn't want to just write another piece saying this show is a good show because it's obviously it's a brilliant show but um you know I, I I thought about it and I tried to say something distinct about it but I definitely did write about it because I was like I don't want to not have a column on this um but I actually don't feel strongly that I I mean in fact I probably I, I don't want to overcorrect and never write about you know, documentaries and PBS shows and things like that. But I I actually feel like if I have an ideal reader, it's sort of two completely opposite types of people who don't even like one another or each other's (laughs) taste. And one of them is somebody who might talk with me on Twitter who's really interested in some of the themes and ideas that I have about TV and is an avid television watcher. And the other one is this slightly like fusty, intelligent, accomplished 65-year-old guy who doesn't watch a lot of TV and is kind of resistant to the idea of TV criticism being sort of, a you know, anything that takes TV seriously and is always saying cliched things about like, how could people waste their time doing that? Like, you know, so for some reason I resentfully have created this totally non-existent person in order to write like toward and against them and like argue with an argument they haven't actually been making to me because for some reason I find that motivational. I think you just described my dad. Okay. Well, that's that's basically. (laughs) Um, So do you think that that 
theory of criticism applies to other kinds of criticism? Like, like, would you be as comfortable doing like a theater criticism no. or like? I mean, I very straightforwardly, no. I would never be a theater critic. I love theater critics, but I would be afraid to be a theater critic because, well, for one thing, theater critics in New York socialize with all the people they criticize, which actually I think is a really complicated thing about it. But the main thing is not that. It's just economic. It's just like if you criticize a play in the New York Times, you close a play. Now, obviously, I theoretically, writing for the New Yorker, can affect the economic interests of people creating things for TV. But TV is a form that's been, first of all, there's tremendous money behind it. You think you could take down a show? I don't think I personally could take down a show. Um, but I do think that I, I, uh, people have different feelings about whether TV criticism affects what people watch anyway. Obviously, criticizing two, two and a half girls, two, two and a half girls, I've combined <laughs> two and a half men and two broke girls into one magical gender mixed sort of, you know, swirl. Um, but, you know, the criticism of Two and a Half Men is not going to make Two and a Half Men not be the most popular sitcom on television. Right. So it's there's a limit to what TV also, criticism I mean, does. Also, the, like, Venn diagram of New Yorker subscribers and, and two, yeah. two, two, two However, and a half men. However, there are shows that I've panned that I do think it has an impact, and I actually try to take responsibility for that. But that doesn't mean not doing it. Like... I just think it's naive for somebody to write really harsh or critical things and not understand that it, you know, it's painful. And you can stomach it in part because TV is this gigantic bajillion dollar industry. And if it was theater or poetry or... Uh, I might feel it. Th- theater, yeah. Well, I, I, I specifically stopped writing reviews of poetry for the New York Times Book Review because although I love poetry, my belief is that when you write criticism, you have to be able to say things are bad as well as that things are good to establish your values and to actually like be in the conversation. It's a way of taking the art form seriously. If you criticize a poetry book in the New York Times Book Review, even if you write a mixed review of a poetry book, you have directly stabbed the poet through the heart. <laughs> like, they make no money. Very few people read their work. Um, they make uh, they make no money in the big picture or in the small picture of the actual thing that they've published. And, like, I, I think that there are probably people who are really well-suited to doing that and also who love poetry even more than I do, and so they're kind of want to create that environment and that conversation. I don't feel that way. Like I, I actually felt like, I felt like a, a weird ethical, emotional in a, in, incapacity to actually do it. TV, I actually feel this kind of crazy cause because it's not just because people make a lot of money or because it's collaborative, so it's not just one person creating a TV show usually, although sometimes. It's actually just because TV's condescended to. And so because TV has been put down and treated as junk and something that at its best you could be like, that was fun, that's not true of TV anymore. And so TV deserves to have the kind of criticism that expects it to be great. And that means that it's, to me, a really engaging and satisfying kind of cause no matter whether I'm praising or criticizing or some something. Are you watching like how many different shows are you watching in a given week? Are you how many hours of I've TV never, do you watch? I've never I've never estimated. The one thing I would like to point out and this may pass over time, but I enjoy watching television. Like I actually really like it. I read a lot too and I do other things, but there are shows that I've already written about that I'm just watching because I like the show. And then that makes me feel weird because I'm like, maybe I should be watching screeners or something. But, you know, I come home in the evening. And for instance, I mean, I just wrote a piece about House of Cards and Scandal 
I'm not not going to watch the rest of the season of Scandal. I'm going to watch it because I'm interested <laughs> in the show. Right. And also, I'm <laughs> like I will just say I have very strange habits and and weird, almost. Uh, like kind of self-destructive ethics. Like for instance, if I pan a show, like not if I write a mixed review, but if I actually pan a show, I feel required to continue to watch the show because I need to see whether it gets better and, and to take ownership of that. I, I, I edited a newspaper for a while and our food critic was like that with restaurants. He pans, like he would, he would force himself to go back tons of times before he wrote a terrible review. Yeah. And then he would keep going he would back. Keep going. Like to... I think part of it was, it was kind of like a smallish town. So like yeah. he like felt like he had to, like show his face after he like I understand killed that. Take, somebody yeah like take responsibility for it but he also like I think he genuinely wanted things to get better or at least he wanted to make sure he was right that they were terrible that's really I find that both admirable and kind of inspiring like I also especially about the thing of showing his face and kind of it's weird because restaurants actually are strangely like television more than other art forms in this way because they this is a strange thing to say because not like one meal takes place over time but it's the hardest thing to wrestle with almost existentially about TV criticism is that you're writing about shows while they're being made and they take place over not just time, but years. And so this is what distinguishes them from novels and movies, which are just made, go out there, you criticize them and people see them. Like it's just, there's a different chronological thing and there's a connection to sports there too like people make ground like grand pronouncements about athletes very early mm -hmm. in their career which like may or may not come true mm -hmm. and i feel i wonder if they, if you feel compelled to like uh make your call on a show early like when when you wrote about girls yeah you came out before the show had aired and you, i assume you had watched I actually the whole first season. I had actually well, first I watched the first um, three episodes when I was writing the bulk of that piece. Right. But I watched the rest of the season literally as I was closing it, and it's weird because I remember having thoughts about some of the. I had seen them film some of the final episodes, but I remember having thoughts about um, like good things and bad things throughout the first season that were not going to get incorporated in. But I went out of my way not to spoil jokes on that show because I really felt like I wanted to people to see it fresh, and that was pointless. Right. Because people just wrote three million pieces, <laughs> right? Like that just described whole scenes before people saw them. Was part of the reason I mean, in that, you know, that was one of those kind of like hybrid profile reviews. I mm -hmm. thought it was a lot about the show. It was a lot yeah, about it was a mix. Dunham, and it was like it was a lot about you guys hanging out and mm -hmm. trying to like get a sense of her. And but it felt to me like very early on. I mean, like within the first you know, 500 words of the piece. Yeah, I you, make this case. Yeah, you kind of like, like put your flag in the ground. You're like, I'm, I'm in, I'm all in. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm, I'm, this is it. This yeah. is the thing. Yeah. Um, and I guess part, I wonder whether like part of the reason that you did that was to also that you were, you anticipated how much that show was going to get discussed and you kind of wanted to be like out front saying like, I'm in, I'm in first. I'm you, you know, what's weird is that, um, well, first of all, when I was hanging out at South by Southwest in the girls' tent while I was doing reporting, the final reporting for it, I actually had a conversation with a, one of the uh, producers from HBO because Tim Goodman's really huge, beautiful rave review for girls had just come out in The Hollywood Reporter. And it came out and everybody was talking about it. And um, I read it, and my piece was going to come out you know, relatively soon thereafter, but um, I, I hadn't, I said to her, I was like, there's got to be a backlash to the show, right? Because it's <laughs> like a, like a female show written by a young woman with graphic sex and nudity and stuff. And I was like, we were both like, maybe there won't be a backlash. Maybe it'll just be like, just received and people will like it. <laughs> and it'll just be this thing. So yeah, I really didn't have a strong 
predictive sense of what was going to happen. I knew it would be a big deal just because I think historically that kind of subject matter and the specificity of having a young woman do a show all by herself would create a lot of different kinds of reactions. But my interest in that way predated, I mean, I, I knew Bridesmaids was coming out and I'm interested in women in comedy specifically. So when Bridesmaids was coming out, I'd actually pitched to my boss at New York a piece about that. And that didn't end up working out and I was glad because a lot of like basically other, every other demographically identical female comedy interested pop culture writer wrote a piece on Bridesmaids. So I had sort of heard about girls and some young women I knew had seen a preview episode or something and were saying, this is amazing. So I kept calling HBO and saying, you know, I was just doing it for the, for the magazine to try to get early access. And they called me out of the blue late in the filming. And we're like, okay, we're, you know, they had said no a million times. Right. Um, and they, 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 they said, yes, come down to HBO. You can watch the episodes tomorrow. And then two days later I was on set. So I was, yes, I was trying to get in early, but it wasn't so much a critical thing on the show. It was more, uh, you, you know, this is how the PR cycle works. Right. Is there are certain subjects that um, you want to write the first profile of the person because it sort of puts you ahead of it. But I had no predictive gift for how that was going to work. And that piece had a very complicated relationship with the whole discussion. And I have all these different thoughts about that. And I don't know what you're hearing my <laughs> analysis of my thoughts about my girl space. I mean, I like is that there, piece. Is, do you want to take this opportunity to like disown any parts no, of it? No, I do. Well, yes, I actually do. Um, but uh, basically, I like that piece. I also, like, I, I often got annoyed when people regarded it as this kind of like, you and Lena hanging out. Like, I was like, I felt like I was making a conscious rhetorical choice to express enthusiasm about the show in a personal way because I was being both self-mocking about the sort of false objectivity people bring to these things and because I was emotionally enthusiastic about the show and still am in various different ways but you're emotionally enthusiastic about her too I am emotionally enthusiastic about her but I have to say I've gotten a lot more comment about my emotional enthusiasm about her than my emotional enthusiasm about Joss Whedon David Chase David Simon or Louis C.K. I wrote an almost psychedelically positive review of Louis this year and I've written a profile of Louis and probably like like two reviews of the show in New York, one review of the show in the New Yorker, and a series of um, of, of enthusiastic blog posts, including stuff about his interview with Mark Marin. And no one has ever accused me of being a Louis fangirl, and people have never accused any of the perhaps thirty. Uh, male writers in their 30s and 40s who have written very positive profiles of him in men's magazines of being Louis fanboys. I think that they're, I mean, maybe I'm being defensive about this, but at, at the same time, I, I, th I think it is a little bit striking that there is this thing. On the other hand, who knows? Maybe the language that I used in that piece kind of bid for that response. The only problem I have with that piece at all was my use of the word FUBU in it, which got legitimately criticized and is kind of a funny story in its own way where it came from. But it, it triggered some of the... Com I mean, there was an interesting conversation about race and diversity that happened around the show. Which Part wasn't really in that piece. No, it was in the piece, but it was a small element in the piece. And if I had it to do over, there were so many different things I was talking about in the piece that you kind of couldn't cover everything. But I did have a line in there where I talked about it being the sort of, uh, you know, um, white... Uh, white hip, white Williamsburg hipster, privileged white Williamsburg hipster thing, and trying to find universal stuff within a narrow world. So, I mean, the fact is, I actually talked to Lena a little bit about race while we were 
doing the article and while I was doing interviews with her, and I didn't include some other quotes that I had about race, I don't think I did see how big that was going to get. And I have all sorts of complicated feelings about that conversation. On the one hand, I feel it was oddly directed at girls, which like several of these other shows, is a small, personal, narrow, semi-autobiographical project about a, a small world and not a logical place for cross-racial casting. Um, it's a misunderstanding of that kind of show. That said, I actually found it kind of useful to me personally as a critic because I was like, I was like, first of all, I didn't see this conversation coming. Second of all, like it actually made me think a lot about race on television in a way that I wasn't previously doing. And it made me kind of consciously make that more of a subject because it made me think things about myself as a critic. You know, everyone who writes criticism has some kind of personal stake in what they're writing about. They have their own little demographic things. They have their own, uh, you know, political ideologies and little identity <laughs> politics ideas and stuff. I feel very comfortable writing about, um, you know, gender from several different perspectives. I feel comfortable with gay stuff. I felt like there's a funny way in which I had a, like, you know, a white guilt anxiety about writing about race, partially because of having ideas about things, but being afraid to say the wrong thing in certain ways. And it just made me feel much more conscious of, uh, like, embracing it as a subject and paying closer attention is basically what it comes down to. Do you ever hear back from the people that you're writing about? Very rarely. Um, I generally haven't gotten respect. You know, like when I've written negative reviews, I haven't gotten a note from somebody saying, you know, th that was terrible. Um, actually, one time on Twitter, I wrote something critical about something, and the the creator tweeted back at me. And I, I sort of, it, it was a little bit weird because I was like, you know, it was straight, It was hard to figure out how to handle socially because Twitter do? is more like a cocktail party, yeah. you know? So and what'd you so do? Um, I, I retweeted her tweet so that people could see her POV, which I thought was legitimate. And then I continued to tweet a little bit about the show, but I was, I, I was a little bit like cautious cause I was like, uh, you know, I feel like it's obvious I'm a critic and I'm going to say some negative things. So I, I feel okay about that, but I do think that Twitter is a developing environment. And so figuring out how harsh or how personal to be is a real question. When you're watching a show and you're sort of tweeting about it, do you and people start engaging with what you're saying and sort of like firing back on your opinions and stuff it, does that conversation how does that conversation inform what you end up like putting into print definitely informs it and I, this is why i like twitter for all its many dangers and flaws and the fact that it will probably blow up in my face one day that i tweet so much but my husband clive is writing a book about technology and the uses of technology and how it changes people's thinking. And he Your writes a lot Clive about... Clive Thompson, Yes, say, he's yeah. a tech journalist. And he... Um, and, you know, we talk about this a lot. And he's the one who turned me on to Twitter in the first place, so it's his fault. But um, uh, he talks a lot about transactive memory, and that's basically the thing where when you and I are talking, and I'm like, oh, uh, what is that word, the word, you know, that I was doing before? And yeah. then, you know, we kind of toss things back and forth and come up with it together, so we're kind of mutually Googling like that. Twitter, to me, is this real... It, uh, like, it's not a writing environment, it's a social environment. Um, but like a lot of digital places, it serves several functions at once. And so there is a level at which I draft ideas out in public, and people throw things back, and that becomes part of my thinking. And it ends up to me being this good, social, transactive, mutual brainstorm kind of feeling. I've written jokes and lines on Twitter that I've then repurposed and put into pieces, which I think is helpful and fine. And I just wrote this blog post that I was telling you about, about the hummingbird theory, totally came out of a Twitter thing. And the word hummingbird 
was because I was naming a particular kind of character. And I said, what would be a good name for this? And a bunch of people put in suggestions. And this one woman, I, I think it was a woman, threw in Hummingbird. So when I wrote my blog post, I gave her credit oh, for nice. having come up with it. Because I'm not, I'm not going to steal right. the name, even though it was in response to a question that I'd asked. Anyway, the main thing is, like, you know, when I'm at The New Yorker and I go into the office... Um, there are people who are very into TV, but not everybody is. And it's not a social environment. Like people, there is not like a lounge where the New Yorker <laughs> critics or writers are hanging out right. arguing about, you know, like how good switched up birth is or something. <laughs> so uh, occasionally I get into a conversation with somebody and like, you know, like David Remnick is into TV. And so I will talk to him about TV. Do, do like know. Remnick and people come up to you at the office and be like, uh, what should I watch? Yeah, a little bit. But on the other hand, there, there are a lot of people who don't own TVs, aren't into TV. And even if they were, I'm not talking with them during the day. I mean, writing is a lonely thing and watching TV is, and I'm an extrovert and I like conversation. And I do feel like it sharpens my thinking, but it also enlarges my understanding of how the audience reacts to TV. And TV is an audience-based experience. It's not a solo experience like reading a book. It's more like theater in that way. I mean, it's a combination of things. Anyway... I do feel like um, because I don't necessarily have that social environment where people are talking about TV a lot, online is hugely enriching to me, partially because I can talk to other critics, but really largely just because I can talk to other viewers. And actually, we were talking about the racial stuff with girls, and I had written about Scandal, and there was like a bunch of, there's a real following for, I mean, there's following on Scandal for a lot of different groups, but there's like... Black women responding to scandal, like some people took issue with my piece or liked it, but had arguments on the other direction. Like I'd written two different reviews of scandal. I wrote an early review and a later review. And I felt like there was this very interesting thing that online, because you can cross all boundaries much more easily. And if somebody writes something you don't like, you can actually go up. Somebody can just say to me, like, I thought that was a really stupid thing to say about scandal. Right. I think that if you talk to somebody respectfully and they're not literally just trolling you, you can get a useful corrective to your read on the show. And this is just an example, but I was really interested that even though the show, especially in the first season, Scandal, was a very colorblind show and nobody ever talks about race, even though it has the first African-American woman main character in 20 years on network television, which is a totally psycho fact. Anyway... There's just this interesting thing where I saw a bunch of black women responding really strongly to Olivia's relationship with the president and seeing it as this really sexy interracial thing and talking all the time about just like all these specific kind of um, take on what it meant sexually for people to be able to see this particular kind of black woman being treated as hot on TV. Anyway, it's not like... I was incapable of coming to any thoughts about the show, but it was so illuminating. It was especially illuminating to have people basically respond directly to my review and say, this is, I saw it differently and this is why, and have an extended conversation. I can have that conversation in my daily world in several different ways, but not necessarily with somebody like randomly in some other part of the country. Right, who's super engaged with that show. Who's super engaged with that show. And there were a bunch of academics who write about like, uh, you know, race and gender on television who I developed kind of, friendly social intellectual relationships online and I guess if I'd gone to a conference or something I would have met them but when in my real life am I going to meet academics in other parts of the country I'm just not right so that's the kind of thing that only the online worlds work for and I I think it makes me a better critic it definitely makes me more accountable maybe this is a good opportunity to sort of like go back and talk a little bit about your sort of 
career prior to writing about TV, um, you don't have to like give the perfect mm-hmm. linear story for for your career, yeah. but you, uh, I maybe I'll try and do it, okay. and then you can like stop in. I mean, I can I can summarize it. Yeah. Okay, so you yeah. you got a, a, a master's in poetry. I did, um, and then yeah. I was in the doctoral literature right. had, program had to like, become like a professor. Yeah, you were like going to be an academic, and then you got out, and you got out at a time when you were writing for this magazine, which I think some of our listeners may know, but not everyone. Uh, this magazine called Lingua Franca. Which is like, I, it was before my time a little bit. Like I've never seen a print the copy. Camelot it, magazine. It's like it is like this great like uh, I I need to find whoever it is in New York that has yeah. like a box of all the lingua franca. Well, actually, you know, are you that person? No, but I actually know that person. Andrew Hurst has a box of them. Um, I'm almost certain he has the whole thing. But on top of that, did you did you know that Aaron Swartz, who um, you know died tragically recently, um, he actually created an online directory of lingua francas yeah i've been actually like the last like couple months i've gone back and and uh read a bunch of that and i've posted some to long form but i i feel like there's uh the way that people talk about that magazine has something to do with like its original form yeah i think that it had very thick paper it had these beautiful illustrations it had a kind of weightiness to it um it had these different colored covers it it would be good for you to see the physical thing because after all it didn't really exist in a digital format you know right like like what sports did is uh, is fantastic but it's a different sort of version what kind of stuff were you writing for lingua franca um when i was writing for lingua franca i started out writing short front of the book pieces and um i ended up uh over time approaching the editor i'd never really written long form stuff in that way and with the encouragement of a friend of mine who was a successful freelancer, he was just like, just go and tell them that you want to write longer things. And I did, and they let me. That was a good educational experience because I was like, I, 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 I sort of had to put myself forward in order to do it. But once I did, I, that's how I learned to structure longer pieces. The subjects I wrote about tended to be overlapping categories like um, Lingua Franca uh, was oh, was generally about higher education. Yeah, it was about higher education and academia. I wrote a bit of variety of subjects. The, my, my specialties were probably like gender and sex stuff, Jewish stuff, poetry and literature, a, a lot a lot about psychology. Weirdly, because I have no background in psychology <laughs> and social psychology. But a seems lot seems like of, you've got like a, you're pretty fascinated with amateur psychology. Uh, pro- with amateur psychology, <laughs> I don't know. Like I, it, 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 this is just to, I, it was such an education to me in how you become an ex, a false expert so fast I wrote um, I wrote several pieces on psychology for various different kinds like I wrote a profile of Daryl Bem who created this theory of how people become gay I wrote I wrote a bunch of different pieces about psychology and then the New York Times book review called me and asked me to write a review of a biography of Bettelheim like and then, and a review of a biography of Jung. Like I literally ended up reviewing biographies of Jung and Bettelheim. And then a small website called me and asked me to write um, a chapter about how young people can get shrinks. Bear in mind, no expertise in this. No, to be <laughs> did fair, did you write that piece? It, I did, and I did a lot of research, and it was actually pretty helpful, and um, it, w- it was good. I mean, it was fine, but the, the reviews I wrote of the Bettelheim and Jung biographies, like, I did not have a background in that area, but I appeared to have a background in that area because I'd written maybe four pieces for Lingua Franca. So, I mean, I think this is lastingly true of journalism, which is to say, if you write three pieces, you're an expert. You know, like, if you write three solidly reported pieces, you, you have a lot of weight in the field in a way that is probably unearned, but allows you to wing it if you're lucky. And I was lucky because this was an amazing magazine and it was very useful. It was about academia and it was read by all of these fancy magazine media people in New York. So it was like a small magazine and everyone who was from that magazine ended up going off to all of these places. So like 
Tony Scott, the movie reviewer at the Times, worked there briefly. Daniel Zaleski, who's a friend of mine, who's at the New Yorker, came from there. And the, the Alex Starr, Emily Aiken, Laura Secourt. Like, there were a lot of people. And you were writing for them while you were still in school, right? I was. What was that? Was there, like, a moment where you decided, like, okay, I'm not going to continue down this like academia track and I'm going to do this journalism thing? You know, like a lot of decisions that people make. My background before this, before I got to graduate school involved a lot of, um, I I was doing political activism. I was working, doing temp job. I was writing a novel I didn't finish. Um, I did a lot of, uh, I worked at a better women's shelter. Like I'd done different jobs. When I was in academia, I was planning to become a professor, but um, I got, this is literally true. I got a fortuitous kidney infection and landed in St. Vincent's Hospital. (laughs) And since I was simultaneously teaching, studying, I was editing a vegetarian health magazine that my brother and sister-in-law started, and I was writing for Lingua Franca. I actually was doing too many things at once. And landing in the hospital during finals allowed me to do the sort of taking stock of things and being like, I don't want to be in this field. Like, I'm too much of a dilettante to focus for three years on writing an academic book. It's a horrible market, and I'm going to end up being an adjunct professor desperately trying to publish stuff. And simultaneously, I was making headway as a, as a journalist. And so it was the right time to leave. And frankly, the journalistic market was a little bit different at the time. So it was easier to get freelance work anyway. Um, but yeah, that's why I left. It wasn't like it was, it wasn't like I had some pure, pure insight um, into leaving. I mean, you know, it's lying in a hospital bed realizing that like, you don't want to do that with your life. That, that's pretty close. That yeah, I know. I mean, I could make it a more clear thing, thing that who knows, maybe I just chickened out because I had to <laughs> heading toward my orals. But I think it was a good decision because it actually was one of those things where somebody looks at themselves and they say, what am I good at? What am I not as good at? And it's like, I'm not suited to be, you know, I mean, pragmatically, I felt like I was I, I was heading not to a good place doing academia, and a lot of my friends later dropped out. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I was sounds like it was the right call. Yes. Were you an obsessive like uh, consumer of culture at that time too? Yes. Have you always been like? Uh, would you have been watching this much TV well, then too? Well, I was. I I mean. I had a lot of changeover moments in terms of TV. One of them was My So-Called Life. One of them was Buffy. You, you know, there were shows that... Buffy was a very transformative show for me. And it, 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 I think... What's it, that, like 97? 97 it came out. I started watching it in that first season. I started going over to my friend's house when it was on. And Where we were you working together. at the time? Um, in 97. I'm really, really bad with years, so I can't remember super specifically. I might have still been in graduate school when Buffy started. Um, but... The thing is, I vividly remember the first season watching the episode The Pack, which nobody thinks is the best episode of Buffy, by the way. Um, But I remember watching it and thinking, they are doing something different on this show that is really shocking and funny. And the great thing about Buffy, and this completely shaped my whole attitude toward TV, is I love The Sopranos. And that was on simultaneously. But um, the Times was doing a million glorifying pieces about The Sopranos. And Buffy was so frustrating because you'd go to parties and you'd have to be like an evangelist for the show because it looked like junk. It was a teen show. It was on the WB. But it, what it was doing was incredibly ambitious. And so it it made me into this sort of pugnacious advocate for it. And it kind of shaped my attitudes toward TV, which is to say... I I watched I I became a fan of like online fan culture a fan of fan culture, um, and and did, I did develop this up is down attitude toward people should not ignore 
um, shows that are in genres that they don't take seriously. People should basically question their biases about what they think is quality in television. Were you writing about Buffy? I did. I was, I was writing for Slate at the time, but it, you know, this happened over time because what happened was I, I was watching Buffy, not really writing about it or anything. Um, then I got a job at, uh, at Nerve, uh, Nerve, which is a magazine about sex and culture, and I was writing, it was both a print magazine and a web magazine at the time, and I wrote a little bit for them, and then I was writing for Slate, um, and I wrote things about TV, and I wrote a piece for Slate called Confessions of a Spoiler Horror that I still think holds up, and is really about my Buffy fanhood and about the rise of the TV audience online. So you're writing for Slate and writing for Nerve, and you're doing these kind of reported pieces, but also increasingly kind of like diving into online fan yeah. culture and various message boards like before we were talking i think oh yeah were... i was on television without pity um which was the big th this is the thing is when you talk about tv you have to talk about 97 to 99 simultaneous rise of complexity on television cable television and it is dis it's directly linked with all of these things that started happening online in terms of the discussion audience the then the appearance of tivo and dvr which made you able to save it i, I mean you can't distinguish these factors. They all happened at once. And luckily for me, I feel like I was into all of them. So it actually made me feel very emboldened to be excited about television. Which right. Is nice. You were kind of like watching in the way that people were starting to watch, which yeah. I guess is like in your work now as well. Um, so you go from sort of slate and nerve. And then how'd you land in New York? Um, I landed at New York because Adam Moss got the job there and he called me in for an interview and I thought he was calling me in to interview as a potential staff writer, but he was interested in finding someone to oversee the culture section and redesign it. Um, and so I worked there for several years. I also created my one claim to fame, which is I created the approval matrix. And I've told this story before, but I came up with brilliant and Adam came up with despicable. And, you know, I, I think it is it's a really good of, magazine element. On behalf of magazine readers everywhere, yes. I feel compelled yes. to like, thank you for the but, approval matrix. But I have to say, I, like, it's so crazy because, um, um, I've talked about the approval matrix before, and I do feel as much as it's a silly charticle, uh, it does kind of represent my attitude toward things because I felt like the entire point of it was to create this, it's simultaneously a critical model and a mockery of one because it obviously points out that something can be highbrow and terrible and something can be lowbrow. It also just raises the question of what highbrow and lowbrow are, and it mushes everything together. Like it doesn't the section always treated like classical music's in one section and books are in another section, TV's in another section. And because the matrix was a place to put them all in one place, it made you see them comparatively in terms of one another. I don't know. Like I can be very, like it's weird. I'm very analytical about the <laughs> approval matrix in this very odd way, given no, that it, it looks it. like a kind of snarky, jokey thing. Are you able to like, uh, do you still look at it every week? I don't, I don't. Part of it is honestly that um, I read a lot of New York Magazine online, and the approval matrix never really worked to me as a digital thing. Um, but occasionally I pick up the magazine and then I do look at it. I don't know. I really don't know why. I mean, even when I was there, I only looked at it now and then once I, once I stopped direct. I used to do a direct. First of all, I used to write it. And then afterward, I hired the brilliant Adam Sternberg, and he is like genius at doing this kind of thing. And he oversaw it. And then I'd top edit the jokes. And I missed that. It was very fun. We'd all, he and I and Chris Bananas would sit around and we'd like punch up every joke. And I had like ethics for it. We had to read the books before we put them on it. And I don't know. But like, um, but e either way, uh, yeah, for whatever reason, I, I, I don't regularly read it. Do you, um, 
Do you have any aspirations of working on TV? I actually don't weirdly have any. I mean, I have a desire to write about a variety of different things and potentially write about things other than television. And as much as I said I don't miss reporting, I actually am a nosy person who enjoys voyeuristically getting paid excuses to like observe things and comment on them. And so I like that kind of thing. But I actually don't. I mean, for one thing, I just don't think that's necessarily my skill set. Like, it's not like I've never written fiction or scripts or anything like that. I did when I was in college, but I don't, I don't really see myself doing that. So yeah, I mean, I guess I was just you know, with all of all the stuff that you're watching and all of the opinions that you have and all the sort of like, I mean, in a way, what you're doing is kind of giving notes a lot of the time. I suppose, but but the, the thing is, like, it depends on how you think about criticism. I mean, to me, criticism even mean criticism is an appreciation of something and it's a sort of ideally it's a guide to people as well but also it's a it's a way of wrestling with the medium it's not the same thing as doing the creative act i have unbelievable respect for people who write television shows i think it's hard and i think even crap shows there's a thing where you're putting your stuff out there and you're creating something from scratch i think it's beautiful i just think it's different than criticism i mean there are people who really are down on criticism they're they're essentially like you're what are you doing you're just pissing on people's work and i really truly don't see it that way and as i said i have however delusional a very strong and deeply felt defense of writing tv criticism specifically as a way of celebrating and supporting the ambition within television but there's just something straightforwardly different about that than creating television or any other kind of art or fiction um that said because i'm not in tv and have no ambitions to be in there i do feel an obligation to understand what people are doing and the pressures economic and artistic that they're under because i think writing tv criticism as though the tv show is just this unbroken thing that's handed to you and then you can kind of chip away at it doesn't make sense i think that you can understand tv better if you understand how it's made so that's part of like a task i have well i look forward to seeing you uh go after that task and and thank you very much thank you very much for having me it was fun thanks for listening to long form i'm max linsky my co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our show is edited by Lauren Kirchner, and our intern is Sarah Amandalare. Thanks so much to Emily Nussbaum for coming in and to our sponsor, Tiny Letter. Uh, go check out the new story from The Atomist. It's great. Matt share is awesome. We'll have him on this podcast soon. It'll be somebody else next week. We'll see you then. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.